The death toll in Gaza has risen above 20,000, more than in any previous war in the region. And the major problem facing survivors is hunger. Coming up, the head of the UN relief agency that aids Palestinians on what makes the war in Gaza so lethal. It's Wednesday, December 20th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, nations in the European Union have reached an agreement on immigration. This will mean that we will finally have every member state actually taking responsibility, not only a few member states. We'll look at the strength or lack of it in the Colorado court decision to disqualify Donald Trump from the primary ballot. And later, how reindeer find food in the snow. This is WBUR. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The White House confirms the U.S. and Venezuela have agreed to a prisoner swap. President Nicolas Maduro's government agreed to release 10 American detainees, several of whom the U.S. says were wrongfully held. Venezuela also agreed to extradite fugitive Leonard Francis, widely known as Fat Leonard. The Malaysian owner of a ship servicing company is at the center of one of the largest corruption scandals in Pentagon history. In exchange, President Biden granted clemency to a Maduro ally. Alex Saab was behind bars on money laundering charges. Lawyers for former President Donald Trump say they will fight the Colorado court ruling, keeping him off the state's primary ballot. The Colorado Supreme Court says Trump's disqualified because of his conduct before and during the violent attack on the U.S. Capitol January 6, 2021. NPR's Rachel Treisman reports a question is likely to end up before the U.S. Supreme Court. The landmark ruling says that Trump is not eligible for the presidency or the ballot because his actions amounted to engaging in insurrection. The Trump campaign says it will file a swift appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. If that appeal is still pending in early January when ballots are finalized, Trump's name will stay on it. Colorado is just one of the states where liberal-leaning groups are making this argument in court, using Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Experts say Colorado's ruling isn't likely to directly impact those other cases. It likely will be up to the majority conservative U.S. Supreme Court to decide the constitutional merit of Colorado's argument and what that means for Trump's candidacy. Rachel Treisman, NPR News. Multiple civil rights groups are suing the state of Texas over a new law that enables local police to arrest migrants suspected of crossing into the U.S. illegally. But in Eagle Pass today, Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez says a surge in dangerous migrant crossings is straining border communities. Border Patrol agents are doing everything they can to take care of the situation, but they are completely overwhelmed. The issue remains in limbo in Congress, which is now done for the year. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced there will be no more, no major votes again until January, but negotiators will continue their work on a deal that combines foreign aid and immigration policy. NPR's Eric McDaniel. They gave up on passing aid for Ukraine and others this year, waylaid by GOP demands for border enforcement measures. The number of migrants trying to cross, many seeking asylum, is at a record high, often in excess of 10,000 a day. And yet talks continue. Schumer said the lawmaker negotiators were huddled just down the hall. We in this caucus are committed to addressing needs at the southern border and to helping our partners and allies confront and deter serious threats in Israel, Ukraine, and the Indo-Pacific. Immigration deals don't come easily. There's been no major reform since 1986. But getting the Senate to pass something will be easy compared to getting House Republicans to agree to or on anything border-related that could be signed into law by a Democratic president. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, The Capitol. 
It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Today, the city of Boston is issuing a formal apology to the families of two black men who were wrongfully accused of murdering Carol Stewart in 1989. It was later revealed that Stewart's husband, Charles, was the actual killer. WBUR's Irina Machavariani has more. Alan Swanson and Willie Bennett were arrested when Charles Stewart lied and told police a black man had killed his pregnant wife. At an emotional press conference today, Mayor Michelle Wu apologized for the pain the men have had to endure. There is no world in which a piece of paper undoes the harm of this part of our history. But it is my hope and the hope of our entire administration that you might accept this letter of apology as a small step toward accountability. Joey Bennett accepted on behalf of his uncle. Your apology is accepted. Your apology is accepted. Attendees also called for the city to pay financial reparations to both families. For 90.9 WBUR, Amirina Machavadiani. The deadline is fast approaching to sign up for health insurance through the state's health care exchange. Residents have until Saturday to get coverage beginning January 1st through the Massachusetts Health Connector. Audrey Morris-Gaste, the program's executive director, says more people will need health insurance this year because thousands were kicked off the state's Medicaid program. The message to people who may be losing their coverage through MassHealth right now as a result of getting their eligibility redetermined is that they should come to the Health Connector, which is the state's health insurance marketplace, and be able to qualify for an affordable health plan. This year, lawmakers expanded eligibility for the state's affordable insurance program known as Connector Care. U.S. Senator Ed Markey is calling on airlines to improve the customer experience for holiday travelers. In a letter today, Markey and other lawmakers pressed airline executives to avoid delays and cancellations and make appropriate investment in staffing in other areas. Last December, customers filed nearly 14,000 complaints against airlines, mostly concerning flight cancellations and delays. 41 degrees in the Boston area. The sun is about to set on a nice dry day. Should stay dry overnight tonight on the windy side. Lows about 30. Tomorrow, sunshine once again and colder should only make it to the mid-30s. Friday, pretty much the same. Sunny in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. It's 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. For the first time, a presidential candidate has been disqualified from being on a state's ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The Colorado Supreme Court handed down the landmark decision last night, ruling that former President Trump cannot be on the Republican primary ballot because he engaged in insurrection. Now, the Trump campaign says it will appeal the decision. And joining us now to talk about all of this is Jeffrey Rosen. He's a professor at George Washington Law School and the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. Welcome. Good to be here. So just very briefly, Jeffrey, can you just explain the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling for us here? An extraordinarily important decision, of course, and the majority of the Colorado Supreme Court held that President Trump is indeed disqualified for running for president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The trial court had held that he did indeed engage in insurrection, which the 14th Amendment prohibits and would ordinarily be disqualified, but the trial court held that the president wasn't covered by the 14th Amendment. 
and the Colorado Supreme Court majority disagreed with that holding, said the president is covered. He did engage in insurrection and then crucially held that um, the amendment can be enforced on its own, that Congress doesn't have to pass a law saying that a particular group of people engaged in insurrection before the law can be enforced. Okay. There was a vigorous dissent, and of course that's going to be front and center before the U.S. Supreme Court. And the dissenters—that's what I was going to ask said, you. So you think it is quite likely that the U.S. Supreme Court will take up this case? Yes, indeed. It's it's uh, has huge implications for the country. There are challenges pending uh, in uh, other states, and Bush v. Gore was the last kind of central challenge to the integrity of the election and the court intervening there. Well, let's talk well. about that because there has been a lot of conversation just, you know, in the last less than four, 24 hours, a lot of people comparing Bush v. Gore to this case. Um, and obviously that was a Supreme Court case that decided the outcome of the 2000 election. How useful do you think it is to compare Bush v. Gore to this Colorado case should the Supreme Court take it up? It's extremely useful, and it's very striking that in Bush v. Gore, the court explicitly rejected the argument that uh, who won the election is a political question that should be decided ultimately by Congress and not by the courts, and stopped the recount. Here, if the U.S. Supreme Court reverses the Colorado court, it'll reach the opposite conclusion. It will uh, hold that this is a political question and that Congress has to decide it which is precisely the move that it didn't make in Bush v. Gore. So regardless of how you think this court should be decided, the U.S. Supreme Court would be acting dramatically differently in this election than it did in 2000. And another thing that has surfaced in conversations since last night, it's been noted that three of the justices on this Supreme Court were, of course, appointed by former President Trump. How much do you think that should or will matter to their ruling on this Colorado case, again, should the U.S. Supreme Court take this case up? Well, the U.S. Supreme Court in Bush v. Gore was very suspicious of the fact that the Florida Supreme Court was a group of Democrats who they seemed to think were trying to steal the election. And Justice Stevens, in his dissent, criticized the court majority for being so suspicious of the integrity of the lower court judges. In, in practice, that may be at play here uh, again, uh, but um, the court will also be sensitive about the tremendous hit that it took in, in Bush v. Gore and basically will try to avo avoid that uh, determination entirely. What, what makes this um, even tougher, and it's a very complicated case with a lot of moving parts, is that the only relevant Supreme Court precedent in this case, decided by Chief Justice Chase during the Civil War, did hold that Congress had to act before the disqualification provision should be enforced. So the Majority, if it's inclined to act here, may rely on that case and try to keep the U.S. Supreme Court out of it. You notice that there's very, you noted that there's very legal precedent currently on this particular provision of the Fourteenth Amendment. Just, you know, as a constitutional law scholar, what do you make of the legal strategy here of using a sort of forgotten provision in the U.S. Constitution as a tool to potentially reshape this presidential election? Well, it's, it's remarkable. You know, words like unprecedented and historic are, are, are true here because it, it is indeed the fact. I mean, the truth is that ever since Bush v. Gore, which was itself an unprecedented uh, argument, which had never been tried before, the U.S. Supreme Court has been at the heart of elections and presidential elections, too. And we right. just saw last term uh, the court refusing to allow state legislatures to change the result of elections after they take place. And we so will for better, the courts in, have in and to leave it there. 
Thank you so much. That is Jeffrey Rosen of the National Constitution Center. Thank you. This week, we expect to mark a milestone in Gaza, 20,000 people dead from Israel's offensive. That's according to the Gaza Health Ministry. That is about one out of every 115 people in Gaza killed. Neighborhoods have been flattened, hospitals, shelters are overwhelmed. Well, Philippe Latorini is the Commissioner General for UNRWA, that is the United Nations Relief Agency that aids Palestinians. He is on the line from Amman. Welcome to All Things Considered. Good to be with you, Marie-Louise. So I, I know that you were just back from Gaza. You were there last week. This was your third visit since war began, and I saw where you said that every time you go back, you think it cannot get worse. I gather it gets worse. And each time it's getting worse, each time it's getting more desperate. Last time I went was on the eve of the truth. At that time, I have seen how desperate people were in the United Nations shelter. They were overcrowded. They were living in unsanitary conditions, sleeping on the floor without mattress, without blanket. Winter is coming. And when I went last week, I thought that what I saw before was already heartbreaking enough, but an offensive has been expanded now in the south of Gaza Strip, mm -hmm. pushing additional hundreds of thousands of people to the south in Rafa, and we have today more than 1.2 million people across the Gaza Strip sheltered in our premises. Mm. These are not even shelters, these are schools, these are warehouses, these are health centers, but you have also hundreds of thousands of people now just living in the open. So the shelter is already overflowing and thousands and thousands of people living outside the shelter. Is there one story, one person who you spoke to that'll stay with you? Well, the, the story is the story of the man with the five children who basically started to burst into tears when he told me that he feels that his dignity has been stripped because he cannot take care of his children anymore since they are begging every day for a sip of water, for a loaf of bread. They are queuing hours to go to toilets and basically they feel treated like a human animal. Talk to me about food. I understand it's become so scarce that people are scrambling for it, fighting for it if they see a, a food truck go past. Oh, th this is also something completely new, and I warn more than once that very soon people will not just die because of the bombardment, but they will die because of a combination of weakened immunity, disease outbreak, and hunger. And now, most of the people I was uh, encountering during my visit were telling me, listen, I haven't eaten for the last uh, day or two days. Sometimes we have to skip for three days. So in an environment like this, uh, indeed, people are so desperate that they try to jump on our truck and take the food from the truck and just eat it from the street. Where do your efforts stand to get more food in, to get more medicine in, any aid into Gaza? Our call is very clear. We need the full opening of the Karim Shalom crossing in Israel. Two days ago, it reopened. Few trucks came in, but unfortunately, it's not yet at scale to respond to such a massive humanitarian crisis. You're describing this is a crossing between Gaza and Israel. Uh, the focus up to now has been on the Rafah crossing from Egypt into, into Gaza. That's exact. So until now, we had the crossing from the Egyptian side, Rafah. Since a few days, we are also using for some trucks the crossing coming from Karim Shalom, which comes from the Israeli side. 
Um, I interviewed the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, yesterday, and I asked him about aid. He was very critical of the UN. He essentially blamed the UN for the bottleneck in getting aid into Gaza. I want I want to let you listen to what he said and then let you respond. They could have tripled the aid to Gaza. They could have brought many more medication. They could have resolved their differences with their local partners and got it in. But the blame is put on Israel and the media will always put on Israel. So please, dear media, go and check how come tens of thousands of humanitarian aid and trucks do not go into Gaza every day. He says the UN could be getting more aid in if you wanted. How do you respond to that? Oh, that's true. We could have much, much more if uh, Israel would allow more trucks to come in. Today, for example, we had only 46 trucks coming from Karim Shalom and 100 trucks coming from Rafah. So basically, despite the reopening of the crossing, we do not have overall additional trucks coming into the Gaza Strip. What we need is something much more meaningful, because what we are getting today is far from enough to respond to such a crisis. I just want to stay for this for a minute, because it's obviously incredibly frustrating <laughs> to to hear uh, Israel is blaming the UN. I just heard you say, you know, if Israel would would open the crossings and keep them open, we could get more in. How do you break the impasse? Well, listen, you have many bottlenecks. First of all, you have a still ongoing bombardment, roads which have been destroyed, trucks which have been destroyed. When trucks come in, they are not allowed to go to the final destination. They have to download and then you have to re-offload. If we would let trucks going to the final destination, you can let trucks come in uh, in the hundreds and this would not be a problem. So the bottleneck is a series of uh, issues related to the conflict, but also to administrative procedure. Mm. That is Philippe Lazzarini, Commissioner General for the UN agency UNRWA, and he is recently back from a trip to Gaza. You're listening to All Things Considered. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 20 minutes, more than a decade after TV stations shut down analog broadcasts and transitioned entirely to digital, the industry is once again making major changes to the way stations transmit over-the-air signals. That story and much more coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont. Celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event, now through January 2nd. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. A midweek drop on Wall Street today. The Dow fell more than one and a quarter percent, its first loss in 10 days. S&P and NASDAQ both gave up about one and a half percent. Amazon today announced it's opened a second same-day delivery center in Massachusetts. The Worcester Business Journal reports it's a 200,000-square-foot site in Westboro. Amazon expects to employ 200 or more people there, depending on demand. The company has also constructed a robotics research and development center nearby. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. And the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. 
Should have a chilly wind tonight. Temperatures about 30 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, sunny and dry once again. Still windy with temperatures in the mid-30s. 41 degrees now in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Earlier this year, NPR published four tapes recorded behind the scenes during executions in Virginia. The tapes revealed details about the last seconds of prisoners' lives and indicated that the Virginia Department of Corrections may have tried to cover up one recent botched execution. Now that department is keeping dozens of other tapes hidden, saying the agency wants to protect the privacy of families family members. But NPR found four relatives of different prisoners who were put to death. They all think the record should be published to hold the prison accountable. Here's NPR's Kiara Eisner. On the bleachers of a middle school football field in Richmond, Virginia, Ian Taylor and his mother Amy look through pictures of Ian's dad, Robert Gleason, and his three sons. Oh man, okay, so who are these people? So this is Joe, which is the oldest kid, then Sean, then Ian. And then those are all Bobby at different ages. He literally looks like my brother. Oh, so. Until Ian was 10 years old, Amy had only told him that his father was dead. But it wasn't until Ian Googled his dad's name at school that he discovered Robert Gleason had been the last person executed by Virginia's electric chair in 2013. I, I just really feel a lot for the rest of the day. I kind of avoided my friends and I went home and immediately asked my mom. That night, Amy told Ian everything she knew about his dad. The murders he committed, the tattoo she got of a drawing he once made, the time he told everyone at the prison they were getting married but forgot to tell her. They literally called me and were like, um, you're supposed to be here for the wedding. And I was like, what wedding? Left him at the altar. <laughs> but she didn't tell Ian that the Department of Corrections recorded audio behind the scenes during his dad's execution because she didn't know that. Nobody from corrections told her the tapes existed. The tape is still off limits. Virginia is keeping that recording hidden from the public and 30 others like it that prison employees taped during executions from 1987 to 2017. Only four execution tapes like them from Virginia have ever been published. NPR aired those in January. The tapes give listeners an insider perspective that no one from the public usually hears. Testing, one, two, three, testing, one, two, three. Have you got the recorder on? Yes, it's on, go. The inmate is now stepping out of his cell. He's carrying the inmate into the chamber. I repeat, the testing of the equipment is now complete. It's 11.04, the first surge of electricity has been administered. The first charge has been applied. 11.05, second surge of electricity has been administered. The doctor has given the word that inmate Whitley has expired. Process complete. The execution tapes are laced with details like that that explain exactly what the state did and did not do when it killed people. And until Virginia abolished the death penalty in 2021, it executed more people than any other U.S. state. 
NPR sued to obtain the rest of the tapes. In the first hearing of the case, a lawyer for the Virginia Attorney General's office said the state didn't want to make the tape public, in part to protect the privacy of families like Ian's. But Ian and his mom said they want to hear what's on there, and they don't mind if others do too. Like one of the prison guards would have been treating him, you know, not exactly legally, that would be a huge problem. And if that were to be released, that could help a lot with, you know, shining some light on that. We spoke with three other families whose relatives were recorded as they were executed. They also said no one from the Department of Corrections had told them the tapes existed, and that they'd rather the state publish the tapes about their relatives too, so they could hear if something had gone wrong. There have been allegations, some of them already proven, that executions have been botched. That's Robert Dunham. He's a death penalty lawyer who oversaw the compilation of a list of executions nationwide where some sort of mistake was made. In Virginia, four executions in the past 50 years are well known to have gone wrong. Dunham says there's reason to believe those weren't the only ones. And here we have an opportunity uh, to possibly find out what happened. I think there's an overwhelming public interest uh, in that information coming out. Uh, and there's no state interest uh, in hiding that information once the execution has been completed. Travis Spencer also worries about whether Virginia might have made a mistake when the Department of Corrections executed his older brother in 1994. He's a comedian now in the D.C. area. Virginia's own from Alexandria. Give it up for the hilarious Travis Spencer, everybody. Come on. Hola, But Spencer doesn't joke about what his family experienced after his brother was convicted. Do you ever use any of this material in your comedy? Hell no. Nah, I wouldn't want people to... It doesn't make for good material. However, on the flip side, the family does go through some things, and that's, that's never been talked about. Spencer remembers how he first found out, when he was a teenager, that his brother had been arrested for a string of murders in Richmond and Arlington. And then I come home from school. I was like, wow, Mom's home early. Something must be going on. He found her upstairs, clutching a newspaper and crying nonstop. I asked her what's wrong, and she really couldn't articulate anything. So I just grabbed the paper and read it, just kept rereading it to it made some kind of sense. And um, I just hugged her. I just hugged her for I don't know how many hours. I just let her cry. His brother, Timothy Spencer, became the first person in the U.S. who was executed for murder after DNA evidence was used to convict him. Spencer remembers how that affected his family. We got death threats. You know, it's almost like we're not even human. We wasn't a structured family. I got accused for loving my brother. That's my brother. I got to love him. Spencer didn't watch when Virginia finally executed his brother. But he remembers how he felt that day. You ever go through a day where you just numb, but you know that Death is around, like, you can feel it. And then the closer we got, the, the thicker the air got, and then the quieter it got. When we told him that execution was recorded, he said he wanted to listen to the tape. I don't know the feeling that I would have after the fact. I just know that that's my brother. I still love him to this day. If there's something out there about my brother, I would like to hear it. Spencer thinks others should be able to hear the recording, too. And for that to happen, it would have to be made public. But once again, you have to have the tapes. You're trying to hold them accountable. After a judge ruled in favor of corrections keeping the tapes hidden in August, NPR appealed. 
Around the same time, the agency hired a new director, Chad Dotson. In other jobs, Dotson has been vocal about his belief in government accountability. Last June, Sandy Hausman from NPR member station Radio IQ highlighted his efforts as the Virginia Parole Board Chair to make that group less secretive. Already, Dodson insists on a greater degree of transparency. And finally, he's pledged to attack a backlog of pardon requests. We've tried to open it up. We're having weekly meetings. My recommendations are going to be transformative. I want to change just about everything about how we do things here. But NPR's request to interview him for this story was turned down. And the tapes are still hidden today, despite the wishes of family members. Kiara Eisner, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, as all things considered, the European Union has agreed on a plan that will change how its 27 member countries process and relocate migrants. We'll hear about it in about uh, 15 minutes on WBUR. Celtics continue their California road trip tonight. They'll take on the Sacramento Kings after a tough overtime loss to Golden State last night. Tip-off in Sacramento is at 10 o'clock tonight. The Boston Bruins are off until Friday. Clear skies tonight, about 30 degrees for a low. And then we should have sunshine tomorrow with high temperatures only in the mid-30s. 40 degrees in Boston at 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments. Reminding you, it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE, SIPC. New appliances can save money. That's one way to address climate change. Making appliances more energy efficient does not affect their durability and quality. And they become another front in the culture wars. Sure, I'm happy the Department of Energy is making sure that we can all save money because we're too dumb to figure out how to do it ourselves. The battle over energy efficient appliances, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Lawyers for former President Trump are asking the Supreme Court not to consider his claim that he's immune from prosecution on charges he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 election while the case proceeds to the normal process. Special Counsel Jack Smith had asked the high court to take up the case right away. Trump's lawyers say they want the U.S. Supreme Court to get involved in another case. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled yesterday he's not eligible to run in the presidential primary under the U.S. Constitution because he engaged in an insurrection on January 6, 2021. President Biden was asked about that decision today. He saw it all. Now, whether the 14th Amendment applies, I'll let the court make that decision. But he certainly supported an insurrection. No question about it. None. Zero. The Justice Department and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau are suing a Texas-based developer and lender for allegedly targeting Hispanic borrowers with predatory loans. Officials say the company also operated an illegal land sales scheme. NPR's Ryan Lucas has more. The Justice Department and the CFPB say that Colony Ridge Development LLC has violated consumer protection laws as well as civil rights laws. Here's Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark. 
Our investigation revealed that Colony Ridge operates as a one-stop shop for discriminatory lending. The government alleges that Colony Ridge targets Hispanic borrowers with predatory loans and exploits language barriers in the sales process. The company also allegedly tells borrowers that undeveloped lots are hooked up with utilities when they, in fact, are not. The government says around 25% of Colony Ridge loans end in foreclosure, after which the company reacquires the properties and sells them to new unsuspecting borrowers. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Stocks closed lower today. The Dow fell 475 points. NASDAQ lost 225 points. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The state of Massachusetts is consolidating at least three state-run family shelters. Families who've been living in hotels in Woburn, Billerica, and Arlington will be moved to new facilities next week. That's according to a state spokesperson. Jeff Thielman of the Resettlement Agency International Institute of New England says the move will be especially hard on children. The kids have had their lives disrupted. They finally get to a place and they go to a school. Some of the kids have individual education plans. Some of the kids have special needs. They're situated and they're comfortable with their teachers. And then all of a sudden they're going to move to another district. Thielman says some of the affected students may be able to be bused to their current school districts. A state spokesperson says the new sites will facilitate better coordination of services and staff is working to facilitate continuity of education and medical care. Local lawmakers are calling on the state to re-examine admission policies at vocational technical schools in Massachusetts. A group of more than two dozen state senators and representatives says current admissions policies effectively discriminate against English learners, students of color, and students from low-income families. Local officials are asking the state to institute a lottery admission system for vocational schools. A prominent Boston-based epidemiologist says health officials must work to win back the trust of the public following the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Sandra Galea of Boston University says partisanship during 2020 and beyond hurt the public's perception of health protocols. He tells WBUR's Radio Boston health officials should not sugarcoat health imperatives for the public. Our instinct in public health towards let's simplify the message and let us tell people something simple and tell them it's clear backfired. And it's backfiring over time as we see this loss of trust that I suppose I'm encouraging us to say, let us be honest about complexity. This month, the CDC issued an alert about how low vaccination rates amid rising respiratory illnesses. And Massachusetts trial court Chief Justice Jeffrey Locke is set to retire tomorrow. That's when he reaches the mandatory retirement age of 70. Locke has been a judge for 22 years. He was appointed to the bench in 2001 by Governor Jane Swift. Before that, he was commissioner of the Department of Social Services. Judge Heidi Breiger will become the new Chief Justice of the Trial Court on Friday. 40 degrees in Boston. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. Still on the windy side out there, about 30 for a low tonight. Then for tomorrow and for Friday, sunshine with temperatures in the mid-30s. 40 degrees in Boston. The time is 4.35. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Heifer International, where people can donate animal gifts like goats, chickens, or sheep to struggling families to help them create sustainable futures. 
Learn more at heifer.org NPR. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The death toll from Israel's offensive in Gaza is on the verge of passing 20,000 people. That's according to health officials in Gaza. To put it another way, according to them, almost 1% of the territory's entire population have been killed by Israeli forces in just two and a half months. To talk more about this tragic milestone, we turn now to NPR's Frank Langfitt, who joins us from Tel Aviv. Hi, Frank. Hi, Elsa. So I know that you've been talking to people who have lost loved ones in Gaza. What are they saying to you right now? Yeah, I'm going to give you an example. I was in the city of Ramallah earlier this week in the West Bank. I was actually working on a different story about economics. And I just, I stopped to ask this man a question. He was in his late 40s. His name is Yusuf Essakani. He's from Gaza. And as we were talking, he just told me that his, nearly his entire family was killed by Israeli airstrikes in Gaza City earlier this month. And this is how he put it. Last Saturday, my wife and kids were killed, he tells me. One son is under the rubble. Seven family members are dead. My wife, four daughters, and two boys. And he said, Elsa, that one of his sons was spared because he spent the night at an aunt's house. One of the ones killed is my daughter, he added. She had one semester left to graduate to become a doctor. And and Elsa, looking at this guy, Esakhan, he's 47 years old, he had this expression, which I guess I can only describe as a mix of stoicism and this kind of weary disbelief. And, and I should add, these stories are now commonplace. So commonplace. I do want to know, though, I mean, these numbers on the dead... They come from the health ministry in Gaza, and Gaza is, of course, controlled by Hamas. So how reliable do you think the death toll that they are giving us is? That's a good question. We can't independently verify them, but the United Nations and aid groups have found them to be pretty reliable in the past. Now, the way the health ministry works is they collect names of the dead from hospitals and morgues. Uh, They digitize it, Uh, but it's becoming harder with the attacks on hospitals and some of these telecom blackouts. Now, in in Ramallah, I met Sari Bashi. In in the past, she co-founded an Israeli human rights group. Now, she's the program director at Human Rights Watch in charge of global research. And she actually says the death toll is probably, is almost certainly even higher than the official figures. Any numbers you hear are unfortunately an undercount because we don't know how many bodies are underneath the rubble. And the Civil Defense Force does not have equipment and in, in many areas are unreachable. And I should add the health ministry in Gaza doesn't distinguish between civilians and combatants, but they do pay attention to age and gender. And they say about 70% of those killed are, are women and children. Well, given these extremely heavy casualties, can you talk about the pressure that Israel is under right now to change its tactics or or to agree to a temporary ceasefire? There is pressure. Of course, we've reported this. The UN General Assembly, human rights and aid groups have all been calling for a ceasefire. Uh, the U.S. has said it won't put a time limit on Israeli operations and says Israel does have the right to defend itself against Hamas. Uh, But the U.S. has repeatedly also told Israel to do more to protect civilians. And it also says 
that there are very serious talks going on right now about another pause in fighting like the one we had last month. It is worth remembering that the Israelis said they invaded Gaza to ensure Hamas could no longer pose a military threat or launch another attack like the one on October 7th, which killed around 1,200 people. But, you know, given that overriding goal, what does the Israeli government say now about all these casualties in Gaza? Well, yeah, Elsa, they accuse Hamas of exaggerating, and the Israelis say for their part they've killed 7,000 Hamas fighters. Now, it's not clear if that includes ones killed during October 7th. And Israel does also say that Hamas is operating in hospitals, using tunnels under homes and effectively making civilians targets. By the way, I should, I should mention that Hamas continues to fire rockets here into Israel, but the vast majority are intercepted. Now, not too long ago, I was talking to this retired Israeli general. Uh, his name's Shlomo Brom. And he says that he thinks the Israeli forces are doing a good job. He says it's hard to avoid civilian casualties, especially when Hamas is, is embedded in the population. And Brom also says that he thinks Hamas sees casualties actually working for them. This is how he put it. Not only they don't care about uh, the population, they think that casualties contribute to their cause. Because that's how they can mobilize media, public opinion, world public opinion, and so on. He's saying that the more casualties there are, the more Hamas believes they can mobilize the media and public opinion in their favor. Yeah, uh, that's exactly the point. And for now, though, Israel continues to bomb. And uh, I think we'll continue to see those horrific images of people being pulled from the rubble. That is NPR's Frank Langfitt in Tel Aviv. Thank you so much, Frank. Good to talk, Elsa. Today, the European Union broke years of political deadlock and agreed on a deal that will change how its 27 member nations process and relocate migrants. As NPR's Rob Schmitz reports, the agreement, which still needs to be ratified by the European Parliament, will make it easier for EU members to remove unsuccessful asylum seekers. Members of the EU Parliament worked through the evening to agree on an overhaul of EU asylum procedures. The move comes after years of failed attempts while migrants continue to arrive over land and sea, fueling popular anger in several countries over the lack of a unified immigration policy. Today is truly a historic day. I am surrounded by colleagues who have not slept for <laughs> days and nights in a very, I would say, also emotional moment. European Parliament President Roberto Metzola said this agreement was likely the EU Parliament's most important legislative mandate. It was not easy, but it only makes this achievement uh, even more important. Uh, we have defied the odds and proven that Europe can deliver on the issue that matters to citizens. Under the agreement, which will need to be approved by both the EU Parliament and the European Council, the countries that make up the southern border of the EU will institute a stricter asylum procedure, and they'll be given more powers to remove rejected asylum seekers. Inland EU countries will be given a choice on whether to accept a certain number of migrants or pay into a joint EU fund meant for migrant resettlement. EU parliamentarian Thomas Tobé. We will now finally have a binding solidarity mechanism. This is not a small thing. This will mean that we will finally have every member state actually taken responsibility, not only a few member states. The deal comes just six months before the EU parliamentary elections. Polls are showing a surge of support for far-right anti-immigrant parties in some of Europe's biggest economies, like Germany and the Netherlands, where a far-right party recently received the most votes in a national election. 
Rachel Dalumpines, spokesperson for German activist group Sea Watch International, says the deal is going to lead to a more dangerous situation for incoming migrants. Europa hat ja gesagt. Die EU einigt sich darauf, zukünftig mehr Menschen im Mittelmeer sterben zu lassen. Europe has said yes and agreed to let more people die in the Mediterranean, she said, making the misery at the borders a permanent situation, abolishing the rights of refugees once and for all. After the EU Parliament and the European Council approve this deal, it'll go to the national parliaments of the EU's 27 member states for a vote later this year. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. This is All Things Considered. With all the streaming and cable options out there, about a fifth of Americans still do watch at least some TV with an old-fashioned antenna. Stations have been working to upgrade their signals, promising better reception and sharper pictures. But the rollout has been bumpy. Here's Minnesota Public Radio's Matt Sepik. If you've shopped for a TV lately, you've probably seen the terms 4K Ultra HD and high dynamic range. That's not just marketing hype. New sets can display images with far more detail, richer color, and deeper contrast than their predecessors. Services such as Netflix have been streaming high-resolution video for years. Now traditional broadcasters are catching up. And Shelley is with the trade consortium that's backing a new over-the-air system called NextGen TV. She says it's a response to demand from viewers. They're wanting better quality. They're wanting 4K, high dynamic range, which is now available for video, better audio quality, and interactive services. NextGen is the biggest change to broadcast TV since 2009, when stations shut down the analog signals that they'd been transmitting since the 1940s and transitioned fully to digital. The rollout of NextGen, also known as ATSC 3.0, began three years ago. Today, it's available to around three-quarters of Americans, mostly in major cities. It came to Minneapolis-St. Paul a few months ago, and electronics buff Eric Kester was eager to try it out. He bought a NextGen receiver as soon as they hit the market. Kester plugged in an antenna and connected the box to his living room TV. With a remote, he tunes in the local ABC affiliate. Hello, everyone. Glad you're with us here for 5 Eyewitness News at 4.30 today. I'm Leah McClain. I'm Paul Folger. There is a lot going on right now. We want to get to meteorologist Matt Sir. So this app will connect to the tuner, and we can see what uh, the ATSC3 signal looks like. The picture looks great, but Kester says it's still no better than the original digital channels. That's because most broadcasters still aren't producing shows in ultra-high definition. Then, Kester changes channels and points out a problem that's bedeviled many next-gen early adopters. Some stations are encrypted. If you tune in, try to tune in one of the other ones, we get unable to play channel content protection required. And Shelley with the Broadcasters Group says this content protection is needed to prevent people from copying shows and illegally distributing them online. And she notes that new TVs with built-in next-gen receivers don't have the blocked channel problem. She says makers of set-top boxes are working on software updates. But now next-gen faces another hurdle. Amid a patent dispute, electronics giant LG, a major backer of the technology, is pulling it out of its latest line of televisions. Consumer Reports Electronics editor James Wilcox says NextGen promises big upgrades for over-the-air TV, but he fears stations could limit viewers' ability to time-delay shows and save recordings, which they've done for decades. 
it is giving broadcasters technological capabilities that they didn't have up until now. That's a concern, and consumer groups are sort of watching to see what happens with it. After the first digital changeover 15 years ago, viewers had to upgrade their TVs or get a converter box. During this transition, the FCC is requiring stations to continue using the old format alongside the new one through mid-2027. Given the challenges with NextGen's rollout, Wilcox and other observers expect the FCC to extend that sunset date. For NPR News, I'm Matt Sepik in Minneapolis. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR in Boston on this Wednesday afternoon. Coming up in about 15 minutes, open enrollment for 2024 Affordable Care Act plans. We'll hear about the number of Americans who are signing up. That is coming up. In the forecast, a crisp, dry evening ahead should stay dry overnight tonight. Temperatures down around 30 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny again and colder, making it only to the mid-30s. Friday, pretty much the same thing. Sunny in the 30s, slightly warmer over the weekend. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Harvard Square Holiday Fair at One Brattle Square. Local crafts for gift-giving, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, the 21st to 23rd. HarvardSquareHolidayFair.com. Come to City Space on January 4th for a conversation about redefining wellness with Dr. Pooja Lakshman, author of Real Self-Care. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. 40 degrees in Boston. The time is 4.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress and a looming election, devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times and they require serious journalism. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. So keep our journalism strong with your year-end contribution. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. You likely know that cars and power plants can be major sources of the pollution that drives climate change. But another big source is buildings, our homes, our businesses. Some communities are now trying to move buildings off fossil fuel energy. They are running into powerful opponents, local utility companies. Sam Brash of Colorado Public Radio reports. Crested Butte is a tiny snow globe of a ski town tucked into the Rocky Mountains. About 1,500 people live here, and Mayor Ian Billick says climate change is a top issue. We're a tourism-driven economy that really relies upon snow and skiing. That's why he's showing off the town's newest major construction site. 
Billick says it's not just a future housing development, it's a climate solution. That's because last year, Crested Butte became Colorado's first community to ban natural gas in new buildings. The fuel is a major contributor to climate change and currently heats most homes in the state. This new development, however, will rely on electricity for heating and cooking, so it can run on climate-friendly wind and solar. We didn't change the regs to say everybody has to convert to electricity. We changed the regs to say new construction have to have electricity. And so this is actually, it seems like a bold step, but it's actually a pretty small step. But similar policies have hit roadblocks in other communities. One example is just 30 miles down a highway in Gunnison, Colorado, population 6,500. Last year, the city presented a more modest update to its building code to make it easier for future residents to ditch natural gas. That gained the attention of Atmos Energy, the gas provider for both communities and the biggest gas-only utility in the country. Good evening, Council. My name is Ken Fogel, and I'm the Vice President of Marketing for Atmos Energy. The company sent an executive to testify at a city council hearing. It also blasted an email to all of its local customers, warning the plan would boost local energy rates and even increase climate pollution. You might find it interesting that today, a home in Gunnison actually produces less carbon emissions an all-electric home that's connected to the grid. Local officials found both claims misleading, but Gunnison's council ultimately scrapped the proposal. Gunnison Mayor Diego Plata says that decision came down to potential problems with the local electric grid. Still, he was shocked Atmos went so far out of its way to block the plan. It seemed like advocacy work, and for just somebody that's providing natural gas, it falls somewhat outside of what a gas company should be doing. And this is far from Atmos's only effort to scuttle climate action. In Colorado, the company founded a grassroots group to organize unions and small companies against similar standards, and it unsuccessfully lobbied to block a state-level green building standard. Across the country, utilities from California to New York have taken similar action, says David Pomerantz. He leads a climate advocacy group called the Energy and Policy Institute. Right now, gas utilities in particular are some of the biggest obstacles we have to climate action. And Pomerantz argues that's a big problem because states grant utilities monopolies. That means customers can't switch and the companies have a guaranteed source of income, your energy bill. And that allows them to kind of supercharge their lobbying efforts with you know what's essentially public money. Now, federal rules ban utilities from lobbying with customer dollars, but there are loopholes. Take Atmos's advocacy in Gunnison. A spokesperson didn't respond to emails to clarify if the company classified that as lobbying. Earlier this year, Colorado passed a law sponsored by Democratic State Senate President Steve Fenberg to try to close those loopholes. We define lobbying relatively broadly to say if you are trying to influence the outcome of a regulation, a law, an ordinance, that's considered lobbying. Back in Crested Butte, Mayor Billick says he appreciates the new law, but doubts it'll stop companies like Atmos from protecting their bottom lines. The company fought his town's gas ban, too, arguing it would raise costs. But he says it passed anyway after local contractors testified that going electric wouldn't add to housing prices. And if more communities want to electrify, he thinks they'll need to be ready to stand up to their own utilities. For NPR News, I'm Sam Brash in Crested Butte, Colorado. So there are a lot of myths about reindeer, and at least one or more of them is actually true. They live in remote areas way up north that get a lot of snow. And you know, living in that winter wonderland can be a challenge if your favorite food is white. 
But it turns out reindeer have special vision. Now, scientists have known for a while that reindeer's vision is special, but recently they have discovered more evidence as to why. When I learned that reindeer have a very unusual visual system, I thought, well, that has to be an adaptation for finding food. That is Nate Dominey, professor of anthropology at Dartmouth College. He studies how animals find and eat their food. He says reindeer eyes can detect ultraviolet light, the type of light that can be harmful to human eyes. One idea is that the reason why reindeer have this special visual system is to see their predators, wolves mainly. So to us, to humans, a white wolf on a snowy landscape would be difficult to see. But for a reindeer, it could be totally different because snow reflects ultraviolet light and wolves, the hair on wolves, absorbs it. So for a reindeer, a wolf would look much darker than it does to us. Their special eyesight also applies to finding food. You see, reindeer are big animals. They need a lot of energy. But surprisingly, their diet consists mostly of organisms called lichens, also known as reindeer moss, which are white. Lichens are this amazing life form. It's a symbiotic relationship between algae and fungi. In a study published in the journal Eye Perception, Dominey and his colleagues focused on the particular lichens that reindeer eat to see how their interaction with light affected how the reindeer would see the lichens. Dominey says that, like the wolves, lichen absorb ultraviolet light while the snow reflects it. So for reindeer looking around for food, the lichens pop out against the white snow. If you're a reindeer and you can scan the distance, and you can see way over there, there's a patch of edible lichens, then you don't have to wander around. You can move in a straight line, conserve energy, get to that food resource, and eat it. Robert Fosbury is a retired astrophysicist who now studies the relationship between light and life. He's had a chance to look at this new study, and this is how he describes what reindeer will see on the tundra. They will actually be able to see different lichens, different colors. And I think that may help them select their food source. This research offers more proof for how reindeer developed their supervision, but there is still more to learn about their eyes. In the meantime, Nate Dominey says if you and your kids want to help keep those special eyes healthy, vitamin C may work. When you want to give treats to reindeer visiting your house, orange juice could be a great treat or... Um, Carrots could be a great treat. So, cookies for Santa and orange juice for his reindeer. Listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. 
and from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. A chilly wind overnight tonight, right about 30 degrees. Tomorrow, another sunny, dry day, still windy. Temperatures in the mid-30s. 40 degrees in Boston. The time is 4.59. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Colorado Supreme Court says former President Donald Trump cannot appear on the state's 2024 primary ballot because he was part of an insurrection. The case is likely headed to the Supreme Court. This is a question of the interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. It really shouldn't be left to states because we could get a patchwork of different interpretations. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the Biden administration is touting the continued success of healthcare.gov, the marketplace set up by the Affordable Care Act. Four out of five people who are shopping are ending up getting a plan on the marketplace website for $10 or less a month in premium. More on this year's enrollment numbers. And for 20 years, a man has been paying down his student loans with no end in sight. A recent email from the Education Department told him he was all done. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Former President Donald Trump is urging the U.S. Supreme Court to reject a request to fast-track an appeal in his election interference case. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports Trump has been trying to delay all his criminal trials until after the 2024 election. Lawyers for Trump say there's no reason to bypass a federal appeals court over a dispute about his immunity from prosecution. Trump argues he has an absolute shield from federal charges over his efforts to overturn the last election because they amount to official acts by an American president. A lower court judge ruled Trump did not have a get-out-of-jail-free pass from the case in Washington, D.C., Prosecutors want the Supreme Court to decide the matter quickly. Whether Trump faces trial before the next election is now in the hands of the high court. Carrie Johnson, NPR News. A top leader of Hamas is in Cairo for talks on the war in Gaza. Ismail Haniyeh's visit today coming amid diplomatic activity focused on trying to obtain another ceasefire in the region and the release of more Israeli hostages in exchange for Palestinian detainees. The talks come even as Israel appears to be ramping up its attacks in Gaza, and Hamas fired rockets into central Israel, setting off alarms. The U.S. has been pushing to protect civilian lives. Health officials in Hamas-run Gaza say the death toll there is approaching 20,000 since the start of the war, after Hamas militants attacked Israel in October, killing some 1,200 people. Israel's military says it attacked more than 300 targets in the Gaza Strip in a 24-hour period and uncovered a vast tunnel network there. As NPR's Kerry Khan reports, the discovery comes as the U.S. continues to urge Israel to move to a new phase of the war. Israeli military spokesman Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner says the tunnels were discovered under Gaza City and were used by leaders of Hamas who planned the October 7th attack in southern Israel that killed around 1,200 people. It is the most expensive expansive construction project ever to exist in the Gaza Strip. Um, Hamas has utilized so much money 
in order to build this. A large tunnel uncovered in northern Gaza was estimated to cost more than a million dollars. Israeli aerial and ground strikes in Gaza have killed nearly 20,000 people, according to Gaza's health ministry. The U.S. is pushing Israel for a change in tactics to lessen civilian casualties. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The U.S. is free to close ally of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro in exchange for the release of 10 Americans in prison there and the extradition of a fugitive defense contractor. That contractor, known as Fat Leonard, has been at the center of a massive Pentagon bribery scandal. The deal comes as the U.S. seeks to improve relations with the major oil-producing nation while also extracting concessions from Maduro. A rally on Wall Street fizzled today, the Dow dropping 475 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The city of Boston's approach to diversifying admissions at its three exam schools has been affirmed on appeal. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, a unanimous federal panel found the race-neutral policy to be on the right side of changing constitutional law. The Supreme Court barred universities from explicitly considering race in admissions. But at Boston's exam schools, race never enters the picture directly. Instead, the district considers students' home neighborhoods in its efforts to build diversity. Orrin Selstrom of Lawyers for Civil Rights intervened in the case to defend that approach. Taking steps to eliminate unfair barriers and increase diversity are not only unproblematic from a legal perspective, but it's something that government should be trying to do. Attorneys for the plaintiffs say they'll petition the Supreme Court to hear this case, too. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Air Force Staff Sergeant Jake Gallagher is being remembered for his service, his friendship, and his sacrifice. The 24-year-old Pittsfield native died last month in a helicopter crash off the coast of Japan. Father Christopher Malatesta, pastor at St. Agnes Catholic Community in Dalton, delivered the homily during Gallagher's funeral today. We gather with anger in losing someone so young. We gather with grateful hearts for the service and sacrifice. And we gather not knowing how we can ever deal with such pain. Among those attending the service was the Japanese Consul General in Boston. Gallagher is survived by his wife and their two young children. Utility company Eversource reports about 99% of customers in Massachusetts have power once again. That's after Monday's storms knocked out power to some 225,000 Eversource customers. Overall, Massachusetts energy management officials report less than 10,000 customers in the state are still without power. In the forecast, a chilly wind tonight, right about 30 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, sunny, dry, once again still windy with temperatures in the mid-30s. 40 degrees now in Boston at 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. It is the most wonderful time of the year 
If you are shopping for health insurance, it is open enrollment for Affordable Care Act plans for 2024. We, in fact, just passed a key deadline for coverage starting January 1st. And for a third straight year, we're approaching a new record number of people who buy insurance through healthcare.gov. That is the marketplace set up by the Affordable Care Act. Already, well over 19 million people and still rising since the marketplace is still open for insurance that starts in February, well, Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra is here to talk with us about it. Secretary Becerra, welcome back. Mary Louise, great to be with you. Why this increase? I think people are realizing this is the best deal in town. They're also saying that this is a great gift to give yourself or your family for the holidays. What better than to have not just a good health insurance policy, but peace of mind that comes with it. So you can take your child to the doctor or let them stay in a hospital and not go bankrupt. And I'll note y'all have done all kinds of outreach trying to get the word out there, trying to make it easier to enroll. Can you tell what is working? That's right. We have, in many cases, quadrupled the number of navigators that help people sort of understand what the process is, what the plans look like, and which one really suits them best. Because sometimes people resist signing up because they're not sure they're getting what they need. Mm. In this case, the navigators have done a tremendous job of explaining the insurance plans and making sure people are selecting the right plans. By the way, it doesn't hurt that four out of five people who are shopping are ending up getting a plan on the Marketplace website for $10 or less a month in premiums. You can't go see a movie for $10 or less. One movie, here's one month of healthcare coverage for $10 or less. Okay, so a couple of points to put to you. One, there are still, even with this jump in enrollment, there are still about 25 million people who do not have health insurance in the U.S., what are you doing to address that? That's right. And that number, 25 million, is 25 million too high, but it used to be about double that before the Affordable Care Act was signed into law. And so we've had a tremendous success. You're seeing that we have record numbers signing up, so we'll probably break a record again. The thing that we're missing, Mary Louise, is that there are some folks who are still a little too poor to qualify to be able to afford the care, but too rich to qualify to get on the Medicaid program, which is our federal program for those who are low income. And if we just had about 10 states that still haven't expanded their Medicaid, which they were eligible to do so under the Obamacare law, we would probably help reduce that 25 million figure substantially. But there are some states that still refuse to help their citizens get on health insurance coverage through the Medicaid program. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to ask about Medicaid. This is, as you mentioned, this is federal and state insurance for low-income people. And just by way of backdrop, Medicaid rolls had had swollen during the pandemic. Now states are disenrolling people again. Do you have a number on that? How many people who lost Medicaid that have been able to get on an ACA plan? We haven't been able to sort those numbers yet because the open enrollment numbers for the ACA for the marketplaces are just coming in. But it's clear that many people who had had Medicaid coverage are now on Obamacare coverage. So that's good news that people are aware. We still believe that there are people who are falling through the cracks who don't have the information. By the way, we still believe that there are people who are losing their Medicaid in states that still qualify for Medicaid, and we're trying to work closely with states on that. What's the single biggest obstacle, Secretary Becerra, to getting every American health insurance. We said there's 25 million without health insurance in this country. You said there's that's 25 million too many. Is it lack of information? Is it lack of funding to increase and extend the subsidies? What is it? Well, disinformation certainly is playing much more of a role today, Mary Louise, than before. 
But I'd say to you the biggest impediment we have to really getting everyone covered is the fact that we don't have a national system to provide health care to people. We have a nationwide system. The Constitution didn't give the federal government the power to make sure everyone had health care. The Constitution left that to every state. So some states do it really well. California, my state, does it really well. Some states, like the 10 states that I mentioned, are unwilling to go the next step to make sure that their citizenry have access to affordable health care. If we didn't have a nationwide system, if we had a national system that let us really ensure everyone had coverage and no one fell through the cracks, that 25 million number would dramatically decrease. Ah. Before I let you go, one more question. I want to note I've interviewed you a number of times over the years, and I looked, and the last time was two years ago. We spoke in December 2021, and the subject was the Omicron variant, which was raging. You were telling everybody, please test, please vaccinate. I guess I'm so struck at finding myself interviewing you today and asking you about the pandemic is almost an afterthought. How are you thinking about it these days after all we've lived through? Well, and Mary Louise, first, uh, please, it should not be an afterthought to anyone. It, it is still killing uh, Americans every day. COVID is still with us. In fact, the numbers are increasing. Hospitalizations are dramatically increasing. So I hope that if you're listening Please get vaccinated, especially if you're getting ready to celebrate with family. Do not be the person who infects your 90-year-old grandmother with COVID. My mom just turned 90. I'm vaccinated. My family's all vaccinated. My mom is vaccinated. She has not yet caught COVID. We want to make sure that we see many more years of celebrating Christmas with my mother. So when you get ready to hug and kiss your loved ones, please make sure you're safe. And the best way to make sure of that is to get vaccinated. Javier Becerra is the Health and Human Services Secretary. I wish your mom happy birthday. You happy holidays. Thanks for talking with us. Mary Louise, thank you very much. The city of Bethlehem is in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. It's a Palestinian city that would usually be preparing to have its moment at Christmas. But as NPR's Kat Lonsdorf reports, the war between Israel and Hamas and the vast destruction in Gaza has caused many of this year's celebrations to be canceled. In Jack Jackman's wood shop right off Manger Square, workers sand down figurines of Mary cradling the baby Jesus and stamp out Christmas tree ornaments one after the other. Burlap sacks on the ground are overflowing with pieces of nativity sets, wooden sheep and wise men. Every day in my shop, it's Christmas Day. Jackman's shop is called Christmas House. He's the third generation wood carver in a family with deep roots in Bethlehem. He says his workers are now making stock for next year's holiday season. This one is already a bust. This year we were in the preparing for the high season. Suddenly we went to zero sales. The war that started with the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th has completely upended tourism here in Bethlehem. New Israeli checkpoints, which Israel says it needs to maintain its security, have made travel into, out of, and around the West Bank even more complicated than usual. And with so much destruction in Gaza and a Palestinian death toll now around 20,000, there's just too much sadness. Celebrating just doesn't feel right. My two daughters, they are 14 and 18 years. They said we don't have the feeling to put the Christmas tree. Normally, he says they have a huge tree full of lights. This year, no lights, just a simple nativity set on a simple table. It's not just Jackman's family. Bethlehem is usually bedazzled with decoration, covered in lights and sparkle, with a big parade full of musicians that marches through the labyrinth-like streets. This year, it's dark and quiet. 
While Bethlehem is the town nearly synonymous with Christmas, many Palestinian churches and Christian communities in the West Bank, Jerusalem, and beyond have decided to call off the celebration and good cheer that usually accompanies the holiday. Most religious aspects, midnight mass and sermons, are happening, but the focus is on the faith. Inside the Church of the Nativity, the centerpiece of the Old City, down a small flight of steps in the back, a group sings at the spot that tradition holds as the place where Jesus was born. It's marked with a metal star on the ground, where pilgrims come to touch the stone. It's also where thousands of local Palestinian Christians come to worship. But today, the church is so empty that a few construction workers are doing restoration work on the floor. Usually, they say, it would be so packed here in the weeks before Christmas, they'd never be able to get this work done. Linda Nocera stands nearby. She's from the U.S. and has made several trips to Israel, inspired by her Christian faith. This is her first to Bethlehem. She says she agrees with the call for a somber Christmas this year. Because of all the terrible killing that has taken place. It's terrible, heart-wrenching, and I believe it's not of God in any way, shape, or form. The only other visitors in the church are 18-year-old Noor Salahat and her dad. They're Muslim Palestinians from the northern part of the West Bank. Noor says she knew the celebrations were canceled, but she still wanted to come to learn about other religions and other cultures, especially during a holy time. Up the hill and through the winding alleyways is the Evangelical Lutheran Christmas Church. It's beautiful, with stained glass windows and Arabic script circling a dome on the ceiling. Glory to God in the highest peace on earth and goodwill to men. Father Munther Isaac shows us around. He takes us over to a corner, normally where the Christmas tree is. But this year, the congregation has set up the nativity set, with baby Jesus resting in a pile of rubble, like the scenes from Gaza. While the other characters, Mary, Joseph, and the wise men, all run to try to pull him out. It was inspired by the images we see on our TV screens of children uh, being constantly pulled from under the rubble. Father Isaac says, especially this Christmas, he wants to de-romanticize the story around the holiday. In reality, it's a story of a baby who was born in the most difficult circumstances and the Roman Empire and their occupation, who survived the massacre of children himself when he was born. The image has attracted a lot of international attention. He says he hopes it will make people think about how Palestinians are feeling right now. Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, Christians around the world will read about Bethlehem and sing about Bethlehem. And I hope they realize that Bethlehem is not a fairy tale town. Bethlehem is a real town today. Filled with people who are struggling to make sense of a war that is so close, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Kat Lonsdorf, NPR News, Bethlehem in the West Bank. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on WBUR in about 15 minutes, we'll find out about the prisoner swap between the U.S. and Venezuela, who is being released and why. WBUR supporters include the Boston Globe's Murder in Boston. A new podcast from the Boston Globe and HBO re-examines the Charles and Carol Stewart case, probing a story everyone thinks they know but doesn't revealing hard truths, new findings, and changing the narrative of a pivotal time in Boston's history. Murder in Boston, wherever you get your podcasts.
A midweek drop on Wall Street. The Dow fell more than one and a quarter percent, its first loss in 10 days. S&P and Nasdaq both gave up about one and a half percent. A group bringing a professional women's soccer team to Boston has filed plans to renovate the team's future home. Boston Unity Soccer Partners will add 5,000 bucket seats to the western grandstand of Franklin Park's White Stadium. It will also add restrooms and food and beverage stations. Construction is set to begin in the middle of next year and will be done by early 2026. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, supporting your health this sniffle season with specialists who can suggest their favorite remedies in Porter Square, Brighton, and at CambridgeNaturals.com and Olin College of Engineering, a community built on diverse interests and backgrounds that believes in engineering for everyone. Apply today at olin.edu. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks. Just go to wbur.org. Celtics continue their California road trip tonight. They'll take on the Sacramento Kings after a tough overtime loss to Golden State last night. Tip-off in Sacramento is 10 o'clock tonight. In the forecast around Boston should be clear, windy, about 30 degrees for a low tonight. The week should end on the sunny side. Highs both tomorrow and Friday should reach the mid-30s. Could settle in the low to mid-40s over the weekend. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Well, it has been a tumultuous year for federal student loan borrowers. President Biden's sweeping debt relief plan was struck down by the Supreme Court in June. Then the administration rolled out new programs to help some borrowers. And now 2023 ends with tens of millions of borrowers returning to repayment. NPR's Corey Turner has spent the year covering all of these ups and downs, and today he shares the story of one borrower whom he met along the way. Kurt Panton is 43. He grew up in Miami, now lives in Germany with his wife, Lizzie, and their young daughter, Pauline. And he has the best, most infectious laugh ever. (laughs) You know? A year ago, Kurt sent me an email, basically said he'd been repaying his federal student loans for 19 years. I emailed back, and last December, 2022, we met for the first time over Zoom. Hey, Kurt. (laughs) Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Kurt told me he graduated from college in 2003 and started repaying his student loans soon after, steady as a metronome. I was always on whatever was the lowest I could pay. Did you hear that baby in the background there? That's Pauline, who'd been born just a few weeks earlier. I'm going to very quickly switch locations. (laughs) Hold on. (laughs) All good. When we met, Kurt had about $18,000 left of his student loans, and I told him his story was super interesting to me. So I asked him to send me every record of every loan payment he had ever made. You still want that screenshot? Yeah, sure. Sending me more is better than less. Okay. My plan was to count 
every single one of Kurt's payments, all 19 years worth. All right, we'll be in touch, okay. man. All right, take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Now, I want to do something kind of weird here, and I want to stop my story. Like, I need a record scratch or something. <laughs> there we go. Here's the thing. I need a little help. So, hey, Elsa. Hello. I've just descended from the heavens. <laughs> I need to explain why Kurt Panton's loans were so interesting to me, and I'm afraid I might get too nerdy. <laughs> I love nerdy, though. I need you to be the nerd police, Elsa. <laughs> okay. All right. I will be the nerd police. So two years ago, before I met Kurt, NPR did an investigation into these special student loan repayment plans that are all based on income. Like the less you earn, the less you have to pay each month, right? Precisely. And the newest plans also promise loan forgiveness for undergraduate borrowers like Kurt if they make payments for 20 years, which, if you do the math, is 240 monthly payments. Okay, I'm with you so far. All right, but in this investigation, we found a ton of problems that were really hurting borrowers. Yeah, I totally remember this. You found that some loan servicers we're not actually counting payments at all, right? And that meant they had no idea when a borrower had actually earned loan forgiveness. Exactly. They were also miscounting payments. And lots of borrowers who would have benefited from these income-based plans, Elsa, including Kurt, were never even told about them. Okay, so these plans, they were like good in theory, but in reality, they were a total mess. Total mess. But... After this NPR investigation, the Biden administration came out and said, we're going to fix this. They promised to review everybody's payment histories and give borrowers essentially back credit towards loan forgiveness, even if, like Kurt, they weren't even in an income-based plan. Sounds like basically a do-over. A monumental do-over, <laughs> Elsa, which then brings us full circle to Kurt, because he'd been repaying his loans for... 19 years. Oh, right. And then under this monumental do-over, as you say, he could supposedly qualify for loan forgiveness in, what, just another year? Emphasis on supposedly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because these reviews at the time last year were just a promise. You know, no one really understood how they were going to work. And everyone, including the Ed Department, by the way, was still completely focused on Biden's big debt relief plan. Because this was all before the court eventually killed it. Ah, right. So Kurt was kind of a test case for you to see if this other kind of sleeper loan forgiveness do-over was actually going to happen. Exactly. Thank you, Elsa. That was awesome. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So back to that first Zoom with Kurt last December. It took a while once we finished, but Kurt did send me his entire payment history. We kept in touch through the spring as I slowly plugged all of his payments into a spreadsheet. And then last summer, the Supreme Court struck down Biden's big debt relief plan, and Kurt and I hopped on Zoom again. This time, Pauline was 10 months old. She's cruising and crawling. And she was sitting on Kurt's lap. Hi, Corey. It's Corey, yeah, you're having fun talking student loans. I hope you never have to pay student loans later on. <laughs> I showed Kurt the yeah. spreadsheet that I had made of all of his payments. Um, Scrolling down, keeping in mind that you need 240 months of payment to qualify for the 20 years. So I'm at 233. Oh, wow. Okay. You are so close. I'm so close. <laughs> uh, when you were scrolling down on that Excel spreadsheet, I was like, 
please get to 240, please. And then I saw 233 and I'm like, no. The good news for Kurt was that the education department had recently announced the first round of reviews under this do-over and said it would be erasing the loans of more than 800,000 people just like him. So we waited until the middle of November, just last month. Pauline got up at maybe 3.30, 4 a.m. She's now a toddler. Kurt told me he fed her, changed her diaper, and laid down with her. So she's laying on my chest on the couch, and I really can't go back to sleep that quickly, so I checked my email. And as soon as I saw the subject, I thought, oh my God, this is it. <laughs> the email was from the U.S. Department of Education, and it said it had finished its own review of Kurt's payment history, and under that big do-over I talked about with Elsa, they said Kurt had finally officially been in repayment for 20 years and will now have the rest of his student loans forgiven. Yeah, it was just me, Pauline, snoring on my chest. And I started crying because I realized, oh, it's the end of like 20 years. I asked Kurt how he'll celebrate. Hello, mom. How are you doing? And he calls his mom. I have to say, mom, you know, I cried. No. <laughs> <laughs> you see, my mom knows me. <laughs> I am so happy, sweetheart. And if you need to release the tears, go ahead. This is uh, just wonderful. Barbara Panton raised Kurt and his brother by herself in Miami and always stressed the importance of education. I'm very, very proud of you because you have gone on to get your master's, you probably will get your doctorate. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think I'm done, Bob. After Kurt hangs up, his wife, Lizzie, grabs a tiny bottle of bubbly from the fridge. <laughs> and they toast no. the email. To the Department of Education. All right. You ready? Cheers. It says Kurt's loans will soon be in his past, all while his future sleeps quietly in the other room. Corey Turner, NPR News. This is NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about five minutes as utilities transition from coal to green energy, many say they need to open new natural gas-fired plants to bridge the gap, and not everybody is buying it. That story is coming up. And then at 5.55, Macon, Georgia, wants to be the place known as the place to go for pickleball. The city now has one of the largest indoor pickleball facilities in the country. We'll take you there. This is WBUR. Clear skies tonight. Dry lows about 30. Tomorrow, sunny and cooler should only make it to the mid-30s. 39 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. 
Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about sustaining journalism that helps thinking people think harder. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Now's the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of cash, stock, or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The U.N. Security Council has again delayed a vote on getting more humanitarian aid into Gaza. A vote is now expected tomorrow morning. Diplomats are trying to avoid a U.S. veto on the resolution. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has more. The ambassador of the United Arab Emirates, Lana Nusebe, wants a resolution that will make a difference in Gaza. Everyone wants to see a resolution that has impact and that is uh, implementable on the ground, and there are some discussions going on about how to make that possible. The U.S. has raised concerns about draft language calling for a cessation of hostilities and putting the U.N. in charge of inspecting aid trucks going into Gaza. Israel opposes that. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. wants to make sure a U.N. resolution doesn't complicate things further. He also says the U.S. is trying to revive a deal to pause fighting if Hamas releases more hostages. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Israeli military officials say their force have discovered a huge tunnel network under the largest city in the Gaza Strip. They say the tunnels were used by Hamas leaders who planned the attack on Israel on October 7th. They also say Israeli forces attacked more than 300 targets in a 24-hour period. Stocks closed lower today. The Dow fell 475 points. As NPR's David Gura reports, it's the first down day on Wall Street in two weeks. Markets began to rise dramatically last week after the Federal Reserve released its latest summary of economic projections. Fed policymakers expect inflation will continue to slow and signaled they will cut interest rates three times in the new year. Wall Street cheered that. But this week, Fed officials have poured some cold water on those expectations, saying they're still making decisions based on data. and That's likely contributed to today's losses. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A U.S. House of Representatives committee is opening an inquiry into Harvard's handling of allegations of plagiarism against President Claudine Gay. Bloomberg reports the Republican chair of the House Education Committee asked for a response from Harvard to questions about faculty and student standards. Harvard's board recently reviewed three of President Gay's works from her academic career and found a few inadequate citations, they said, but not plagiarism. Gay testified before a House panel last month about allegations of anti-Semitism on Harvard's campus. Today, the city of Boston has issued a formal apology to the families of two black men who were wrongfully accused of murdering Carol Stewart in 1989. It was later revealed that Stewart's husband, Charles, was the actual killer. WBUR's Irina Machavariani has more. Alan Swanson and Willie Bennett were arrested when Charles Stewart lied and told police a black man had killed his pregnant wife. At an emotional press conference today, Mayor Michelle Wu apologized for the pain the men have had to endure. There is no world in which a piece of paper undoes the harm of this part of our history. But it is my hope and the hope of our entire administration that you might accept this letter of apology as a small step toward accountability. Joey Bennett accepted on behalf of his uncle. The apology is accepted. The apology is accepted. Attendees also called for the city to pay financial reparations to both families. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Machavadiani. Massachusetts Secretary of State Bill Galvin won't comment on efforts to keep Donald Trump's name off the state primary ballot. Yesterday, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that Trump's name can be kept off the ballot because of Trump's role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The Trump campaign says it will appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Secretary Galvin says this is an evolving situation that anticipates and anticipates litigation in the state. The primary is set for March 5th in Massachusetts, and Galvin says the ballot won't be finalized until early next month. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. A chilly wind tonight, temperatures just about 30 degrees, and for tomorrow, sunshine's back. Some fair weather clouds around. Should be another dry day. Still windy, highs in the mid-30s. Friday, pretty much the same, sunny and chilly. Temperatures in the mid-30s again. 39 degrees in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Neon with Ferrari. Michael Mann's film about Enzo Ferrari fighting to save his empire, his family, and win the biggest race of his career. With Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Patrick Dempsey, opens in theaters Christmas Day. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. More now on the Colorado Supreme Court ruling yesterday that Donald Trump should be excluded from that state's presidential primary because he was deemed by the court to have engaged in insurrection. It's a huge development looking ahead at the 2024 election. It is probably not the final word on the issue because the U.S. Supreme Court will likely have a say. Joining me now in the studio is NPR voting correspondent Miles Parks. Hey, Miles. Good to see you. Hey. So uh, big headline. Trump has been ruled ineligible in Colorado due to his actions around January 6th. What is the legal argument? So this all really hinges on how you read Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. This law dates to just after the Civil War, and it says it says you can't hold public office in the United States if you're, quote, if you've been deemed to, quote, have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the state or given aid or comfort to those that have, mm-hmm. which is where you immediately get into murky legal territory because Trump has not been convicted of any of his actions related to the 2020 election. But the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that those actions trying to overturn that election were sufficient to have considered to participate in insurrection. Here's David Becker. He's a former Justice Department lawyer who runs the Center for Election Innovation and Research. It's important to note that the 14th Amendment does not say, as it could, convicted of insurrection. It doesn't say that. It says engaged in insurrection. Now, Trump is expected to appeal this ruling, and most legal scholars expect the U.S. Supreme Court to have the final say here. Wait, but I'm thinking about the timeline here. It is December. (laughs) 
The first nominating contests in the Republican primary are next month, January. So how does this affect the political calendar? Well, first off, the Colorado Supreme Court in its ruling said that if this goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, then its decision will not go into effect until that's resolved. So it's very possible Trump still ends up on Colorado primary ballots. Uh But the bigger question here could affect everyone across the country. It affects the Republican Party, which is trying to parse out whether its candidate is going to be able to appear on general election ballots in November. And it affects election officials who obviously need weeks to prepare and print out ballots. Generally, everyone in the elections world just wants the Supreme Court to rule on this as soon as possible. I talked about that with Guy Uriel Charles, who's an election law expert at Harvard Law School. The 2024 election is going to be hard enough as it is. So the sooner we know what the fundamental rules are, the better off that we're going to be. It's critical for the court to resolve this as soon as it possibly can. Miles, what about voters? Uh, We know that this is per polling. A lot of voters, uh, including a lot of Republicans, still think the 2020 election was stolen. We've said it before. We'll say it again. It was not stolen. But do we know how voters feel about this, about whether Trump should be able to run? There is some data on this. The best we have probably from a Politico morning consult poll that was conducted earlier this fall. It asked voters different questions about the 14th Amendment and Trump's, um, whether it should disqualify Trump. Half of all voters think Trump should be disqualified. And my colleague Lucas Brady-Woods of KUNC spoke to one of those voters, David Hitchcock, who's an independent from Fort Collins, Colorado, and he said this about Trump. Partook in an insurrection and um, basically wants to get back into the government to become king. That's extremely dangerous to democracy. As you might imagine, this is pretty starkly divided along partisan lines. Only something like one in six Trump voters think Trump should be disqualified. But when you talk to election experts, they're really worried about that portion of the population, the population that generally thinks the system is rigged against Trump. You know, removing him from the ballot will obviously add fuel to that fire, which then presents the very real possibility of whether it's unrest or potentially violence like we saw three years ago. And real quick reaction from the rest of the political world. So President Biden said he did think that Trump did uh, take part in insurrection, but that the courts should decide this issue. On the Republican side, everyone in the Republican Party running against Trump basically uh, came out against this decision and said voters should decide this. NPR's Miles Parks, thank you. Thank you. Today, 10 Americans who were being held in Venezuela were released and are coming home. It's part of a big prisoner swap, a puzzle with many pieces. The deal also sees the return to the U.S. of a man best known as Fat Leonard. He's a defense contractor who pleaded guilty to bribing U.S. Navy officials with cash and luxury goods from Cuban cigars to Spanish suckling pigs. NPR White House correspondent Deepa Shivaram has been sorting through these puzzle pieces and joins us now. Hey, Deepa. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so what exactly is in this deal between the U.S. and Venezuela? Like, who is getting released here? Right. So, well, of those 10 Americans that you mentioned, White House officials say six of them were wrongfully detained. And then there were also four other Americans, and all of them are now on their way home to the U.S. The deal also included the release of 21 Venezuelan political prisoners and the suspension of arrest warrants of three other Venezuelans. And I should note here, one of the Venezuelan prisoners being released is a man named Roberto Abdul, who was a leader in the opposition movement against Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro. Abdul was arrested this month for treason. 
Okay, and don't forget Fat Leonard, the defense contractor. Right, of course, we cannot forget Fat Leonard. Earlier, of course, you mentioned the Spanish suckling pigs. That has to do with a man named Leonard Francis, who, as you pointed out, is more commonly known as Fat Leonard. Francis was arrested in 2013 for this huge bribery conspiracy involving scores of Navy officials, tens of millions of dollars in fraud and millions in bribes and gifts, including the pigs and the cigars. Back then, he pled guilty, but when he was on house arrest, he cut off his ankle monitor and fled to Venezuela. So Ooh. now he'll be arrested and returned to the U.S. as well. Okay. Well, what does Venezuela get in return in this deal? Right. So in exchange, President Biden granted clemency to a man named Alex Saab, who's a close ally of Maduro. He was arrested in 2020 after being accused of money laundering and was awaiting trial. White House officials characterized all of this as a really difficult choice to make, but President Biden said today that bringing home Americans who have been detained or being held hostage around the world is a high priority. Right, but let me ask you, I mean, the U.S. and Venezuela don't exactly have diplomatic relations, so how did all of this come together? Officials say the talks on this took months, Elsa, and the deal came together with help from Qatar. But there is more to it than exchanging prisoners. This uh-huh. all comes as the U.S. and other world players have been pushing Venezuela to hold fair elections in 2024. Back in October, Maduro agreed to something called the Barbados Accords or the Barbados Agreements, and it's basically a roadmap for how they'll hold free and fair elections next year. And as part of that agreement, they said they'd release political prisoners and wrongfully detained Americans. In exchange, the U.S. temporarily lifted sanctions on Venezuelan oil. Here's what President Biden said on the tarmac today on the agreements about the elections next year. Maduro so far He's keeping his commitment on a free election. It ain't done yet. Got a long way to go. But, uh, but it's good so far. No, I will note here that Venezuela already missed a deadline of November 30th to meet some of those conditions in the Barbados agreements, even though the U.S. had threatened to put back in place those sanctions. So keep in mind, you know, there's a lot going on here. There are also some domestic political issues at play for Biden. There's been huge numbers of Venezuelan migrants coming to the U.S. southern border. Oil prices and migration are both hot button topics for the 2024 election. So keeping this deal makes some political sense for Biden at home as well. That is NPR's Deepa Shivaram. Thank you so much, Deepa. Thank you. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In general, it is now cheaper to generate electricity with wind and solar energy than by burning coal. And it's been years since a major coal-fired power plant has been built in the U.S. That does not mean they are all being replaced with renewable energy. As KUNC's Ray Solomon reports, lots of utilities are using natural gas. At the Rawhide Power Plant in Wellington, Colorado, Brody Griffin describes the heart of his work as a 16-story fire tornado. This is the boiler, and right on the other side of these walls, that's where that 2,400-degree flame is, is burning. The giant flame is fueled by massive amounts of coal. At full load, we burn about 300,000 pounds per hour. All that heat turns water into high-pressure steam, which rotates a turbine, generating electricity that powers homes and businesses across northern Colorado. But things are changing. The utility says this vast coal-fired operation doesn't make economic sense anymore. And their customers are demanding cleaner energy. So the power company will be shutting down the plant in six years. In the future, we need a different technology 
But just which different technology will take over after coal's demise is a big and contentious question. Platte River Power Authority, the utility that owns the plant, is investing heavily in renewable energy, but also aside of climate warming pollution. The utility's post-coal blueprint calls for new plants that burn natural gas, a decidedly not carbon-free fossil fuel. That's troubling to Sue McFadden. I was really shocked that they were going to build a gas-fired power plant. McFadden is a Platte River customer who wants a cleaner grid. She and local environmental groups point to climate scientists' urgent warnings that we need to stop using fossil fuels and to the Biden administration's goal for a carbon-free grid by 2035. They call new natural gas plants an expensive waste of time and money. I know there's far better solutions out there. But utilities still have legitimate concerns about the reliability of a grid powered exclusively by wind and solar, says Jacqueline Cochran with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. What a utility never wants to do is be out of power. Cochran says that solar and wind are generally great at meeting base loads, but... We have a mismatch in when renewable energy is generated versus when there's a demand for electricity. Cochran says new technologies like long-duration battery storage that solve for that mismatch are on the horizon. But they're not ready for primetime quite yet, and they probably won't be until after the utility's deadline for shutting down the Rawhide coal plant, leaving a reliability gap that natural gas can easily fill. Mark Dyson says that's why lots of utilities are still eyeing new natural gas plants. He's with the Rocky Mountain Institute, a research and analysis nonprofit. We see proposals for new investment in gas-fired power plants all over the country. Those totaled at least $100 billion nationwide, Dyson found in 2021. He says that's in spite of evidence that carbon-free energy is a better investment. That would save customers on the order of $20 billion dollars and it would avoid more than 800 million metric tons of CO2 over the project lifetimes of those proposed natural gas plants. Even so, the gas proposals keep coming. As he prepares to close the Rawhide coal plant, Brody Griffin says the stakes of a reliable power supply are just too high to allow uncertainty. We don't get to make bets in our industry. Our job is to keep the lights on. So this is a proven technology that we know we can count on in the near future. So for now, some version of the fire tornado, one that swaps out coal for natural gas, will likely keep burning into the clean energy future. For NPR News, I'm Ray Solomon. This is NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up starting at 6.30, because of rising costs, eating out is more expensive, and that means less money left over for restaurants when the holidays are over. Usually Christmas is where we kind of get extra for the year. We're just going to be even. We'll check in with two tamale makers tonight in business news. Again, it starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, supporting local charities during the Share the Love event. Learn more at MetroWestSubaru.com. Overnight tonight should be clear and chilly, about 30 for low. The week should end on the sunny side. Highs both tomorrow and Friday should only reach the mid-30s, could settle in the low to mid-40s over the weekend. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 5.49. There's a massive evergreen tree decked out with lights on the Boston Common. It's the city's official Christmas tree, but it's also a symbol of gratitude from our neighbors to the north. Here's a tidbit of history from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. 
For more than half a century, Nova Scotia has sent down a fresh tree for the holiday season. To say thank you to the people of, uh, of Boston and New England for what they did for us in our real time of need. That's Nova Scotia Premier Tim Houston. Back in 1917, two ships collided in Halifax Harbor, causing a deadly explosion. Hundreds of people were killed and thousands injured. By 10 o'clock that night, the good people of Boston had loaded a train with medical supplies, doctors, nurses. The Canadian province continues to recognize Boston's efforts that day by sending the perfect Christmas tree. To get more stories like this about Boston's place in history, head to WBUR.org slash field guide. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. An update now to a story we brought you last month. It is the story of a Palestinian olive farmer named Ayub Abu Hejle. My team and I were in the Middle East, and even as the world focused on Gaza, we were hearing reports of violence in the other Palestinian territory, the Israeli-occupied West Bank, which is why we traveled to meet Ayub at his home in a town called Deristia. He told us what his olive trees mean to him, to his family. I'm raising these olive trees like my children. So it's not the issue of income. It's our land, you know? the connection of the trees, the soil, the stones, uh, this is uh, the important. But Ayub told us that Israeli settlers and the IDF, Israel's military, had blocked him from his land since the October 7th Hamas attack. Ayub offered to take us to a hill overlooking his olive trees. And as we walked with him, first a drone appeared, then Israeli soldiers. It was just one moment, one day in the life of one person. But it has stuck with me because of how it captured the tension in the West Bank and how it confirmed a pattern of behavior documented by NPR and other news organizations that can make daily life a humiliation for Palestinians. Well, yesterday, I got the chance to put Ayub's story to the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog. I was interviewing President Herzog for an event hosted by the Atlantic Council. I told him about Ayub, about how he tried to show us his olive trees. And then about a dozen Israeli soldiers appeared and pointed their guns at us and shouted at us and separated the farmer from us, detained him, handcuffed him, blindfolded him, and questioned him for hours. Um, why, is, why is the IDF doing this? So I would uh, be very cautious in generalizing Israeli activities on the ground. But we have to understand what we went through as a nation. What we've gone through as a nation, and I think that is what is missing in the entire discussion about the day after, is a major, major national trauma. Israelis who believed in peace throughout their lives, Israelis who are neighbors with, uh, with Palestinians, woke up one day and found the Palestinians, the same Palestinians that they were working here or with or living with or supporting, coming with knives, hatchets and guns and killing and burning and torturing them. And this has impacted the entire situation on the uh, uh, meeting points between Israelis and Palestinians all throughout until things calm down. And yet there is a major scar within the Israeli national psyche, can anybody trust his or her neighbor? That is why there was such a major alert in the West Bank. And I can tell you that with respect to complaints about 
violence in, in the area. The Israeli authorities, the legal authorities have clamped down dramatically. When President Herzog speaks of major national trauma that Israelis have suffered, remember that when Hamas attacked Israel, some 1,200 people were killed. But that day, when we met Ayub, he wasn't armed, wasn't trying to hurt anyone, was just trying to glimpse his land. I suppose the, the basic question here is just, is Israel doing enough to stop Israeli settler violence in the West? So there's a major, major clampdown, and, and the trajectory has been a substantial reduction of events of that nature. But I also would be very careful on generalizing Israelis who live in the West Bank. There are about half a million of them, and 99% of them are not involved in any of this. That was the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, speaking with me at a virtual event hosted by the Atlantic Council. You can find more perspectives and our full coverage of the war between Israel and Hamas at NPR.org. Macon, Georgia, made sports history this month when the doors opened to the world's largest indoor pickleball facility. It's part of a plan to establish the city as a destination for the growing sport. Josephine Bennett with Georgia Public Broadcasting reports. The parking lot of the Macon Mall has not been this full for years. People have come from all over for Southern Pickleball's Candy Cane Classic. We've got people from as far north as Wisconsin. You know, 650 players are here. John Roberts is the manager of Rhythm and Rally, a new pickleball facility. And it stretches the gamut of certainly the southeast, but also we probably have 30 to 40 of that number that are your quintessential snowbirds on their way south. Inside the mall, competitors battle it out on 32 courts covering two floors of an old Belk department store. This was once the biggest mall in Georgia, says Alex Morrison, who works with the city on urban development. For an entire generation of Americans, the mall was their town center. But like malls across the country, this one has seen its share of store closings over the past two decades. But this infrastructure is still here. So a mega pickleball center made sense as a way to revive life at the mall. It also plays into Macon's passion for pickleball that's been growing thanks to the conversion of a large outdoor tennis facility in 2017. It's a Monday night, and all 26 pickleball courts at Tattnall Park are teeming with players, including Jill Vanderhoek, who's only been playing two years but already taking home gold medals. She says the city's investment in pickleball infrastructure made that possible. Between the access of being able just to pick up the sport, being able to come out and learn and get better, and then the courts, like we have real courts. And you don't necessarily see that sort of investment. There are now 71 public courts in the city, and low fees make pickleball accessible here. The sport also has cheerleaders, like Paul Midkiff, the president of the Macon Pickleball Association. The former Catholic high school teacher spreads the gospel of pickleball at Tattnall, where he teaches Pickleball 101. I was the tennis player that didn't want to play pickleball, thought it was kind of beneath me but got on the court, played for about two and a half hours, went home, took a shower, went to Dick's Sporting Goods, bought two paddles and some balls because I wanted to play it the next day. 
According to USA Pickleball, it's the fastest growing sport in the nation. There are thousands of courts and even pickleball franchises dotting every state, and its popularity shows no signs of slowing. For John Roberts, who runs the mall pickleball courts, Macon's all-in approach to the sport could put the city on the map, just like the Masters tournament did to another Georgia town. It's been our ambition to make pickleball to Macon what golf is to Augusta and have this be the premier pickleball location, at least in the southeast of the United States, if not the country. This go big or go home approach is reflected in the number of courts here. And at the rate people are playing pickleball in this city, it could just get there. For NPR News, I'm Josephine Bennett in Macon, Georgia. Thanks for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Churchill Downs, presenting the 150th Kentucky Derby, dedicated to making memories last forever for nearly 150 years. The Kentucky Derby on Saturday, May 4th. More at KentuckyDerby.com. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Come to WBUR City Space January 4th for a conversation about redefining wellness with Dr. Pooja Lakshman, author of Real Self-Care. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. 39 degrees now in Boston. The time is 559. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. More than 20,000 people in Gaza have died since Hamas attacked Israel in early October. A major problem for Palestinian civilians in Gaza is hunger. They are begging every day for a sip of water, for a loaf of bread, and basically they feel treated like a human animal. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, the head of the National Constitution Center considers the issue of Donald Trump being disqualified from Colorado's primary election ballot. And the state of Virginia is refusing to make public dozens of tapes made behind the scenes of executions, despite the wishes of family members of executed inmates to access the tapes. Wall Street took a big drop today. That story and much more is still to come on WBUR. It's 6.01.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Ten Americans who were being held hostage in Venezuela will now be coming home. That's after the White House struck a deal to grant clemency to an ally of Venezuelan leader Nicolas Maduro. NPR's Deepa Chevron reports the negotiations took months and involved senior administration officials and those close to Maduro. Of the 10 Americans coming back to the U.S., White House officials say six were wrongfully detained. As part of the deal, fugitive Leonard Francis, also known as Fat Leonard, will be extradited to the U.S. Francis is known for bribing U.S. Navy officials but had fled to Venezuela during his sentencing. In exchange, President Biden granted clemency to Alex Saab, a Maduro ally who was arrested for money laundering in 2020. Maduro has also agreed to release 21 Venezuelan prisoners and to suspend arrest warrants for three other Venezuelans. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. Lawyers for former President Donald Trump say they will fight the Colorado court ruling, keeping him off the state's primary ballot. The Colorado Supreme Court says Trump's disqualified because of his conduct before and during the violent attack on the U.S. Capitol January 6 of 2021. As NPR's Rachel Treisman reports, the question is likely to end up before the U.S. Supreme Court. The landmark ruling says that Trump is not eligible for the presidency or the ballot because his actions amounted to engaging in insurrection. The Trump campaign says it will file a swift appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. If that appeal is still pending in early January when ballots are finalized, Trump's name will stay on it. Colorado is just one of the states where liberal-leaning groups are making this argument in court, using Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Experts say Colorado's ruling isn't likely to directly impact those other cases. It likely will be up to the majority conservative U.S. Supreme Court to decide the constitutional merit of Colorado's argument and what that means for Trump's candidacy. Rachel Treisman, NPR News. Home prices are on the rise again. Good for home owners, frustrating for would-be buyers. But as NPR's Chris Arnold explains, there still just aren't enough homes for sale. This housing market would make for a good econ class on supply and demand. The Federal Reserve has been trying to cut inflation. That's driven up mortgage rates and reduced demand. There's been nearly a 50% drop in home sales in the western U.S. But the median home price still hit a new record for November at 387 $7,000. Lawrence Yoon is with the National Association of Realtors. You have a situation with strange dynamics where you have reduction in demand, but that led to higher prices because there was even greater reduction in supply. We haven't been building enough new homes, and people with low mortgage rates aren't selling because they don't want to lose that low interest rate. Chris Arnold, NPR News. Wall Street snapped its winning streak today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 475 points. The Nasdaq was down 225 points. The S&P dropped 70 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The deadline is fast approaching to sign up for health insurance through Massachusetts Healthcare Exchange. Residents have until Saturday to get coverage that begins January 1st through the Massachusetts Health Connector. Audrey Morris-Gasteyer is the program's executive director. She says more people will need health insurance this year because thousands were kicked off the state's Medicaid program. The message to people who may be losing their coverage through MassHealth right now as a result of getting their eligibility redetermined is that they should come to the Health Connector, which is the state's health insurance marketplace, and be able to qualify for an affordable health plan. This year, lawmakers expanded eligibility for the state's affordable insurance program known as Connector Care. The state says that the, uh, the emergency assistance director general says that the state is consolidating 10 family shelters in Massachusetts. Families who've been living in hotels in Woburn, Billerica, and Arlington will be moved to new facilities next week. 
Jeff Thielman is the head of the Resettlement Agency International Institute of New England. He says the move would be especially hard on children. The kids have had their lives disrupted. They finally get to a place and they go to a school. Some of the kids have individual education plans. Some of the kids have special needs. They're situated and they're comfortable with their teachers. And then all of a sudden they're going to move to another district. Dillman says that some of the affected students may be able to be bused to their current school districts. A state spokesperson says the new sites will facilitate better coordination of services and the staff is working to facilitate continuity of education and of medical care. A federal appeals court has decided to uphold Boston's exam school admissions policy. The group challenged the policy used in the 21-22 school year, saying it was unconstitutionally based on race. But the court upheld the policy, saying it doesn't consider the race of any individual student. It says it instead considers their geographic and socioeconomic background as well as their GPA. And local lawmakers are calling on the state to re-examine admissions policies of vocational technical schools in Massachusetts. The group of more than two dozen state senators and representatives says current admissions policies effectively discriminate against English learners, students of color, and students from low-income families. The local officials are asking the state to institute a lottery admission system for vocational schools. In the forecast, a cold wind tonight, right about 30 degrees overnight. And then tomorrow, another sunny and dry day, still on the windy side with highs in the mid-30s. Friday, pretty much the same thing. Sunny, chilly temperatures in the mid-30s again. 39 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. WBUR supporters include the Public Welfare Foundation committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. For the first time, a presidential candidate has been disqualified from being on a state's ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The Colorado Supreme Court handed down the landmark decision last night, ruling that former President Trump cannot be on the Republican primary ballot because he engaged in insurrection. Now, the Trump campaign says it will appeal the decision. And joining us now to talk about all of this is Jeffrey Rosen. He's a professor at George Washington Law School and the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. Welcome. Good to be here. So just very briefly, Jeffrey, can you just explain the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling for us here? An extraordinarily important decision, of course, and the majority of the Colorado Supreme Court held that President Trump is indeed disqualified for running for president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The trial court had held that he did indeed engage in insurrection, which the 14th Amendment prohibits and would ordinarily be disqualified, but the trial court held that the president wasn't covered by the 14th Amendment. And the Colorado Supreme Court majority disagreed with that holding, said the president is covered. He did engage in insurrection. And then crucially held that um, the amendment can be enforced on its own, that Congress doesn't have to pass a law saying that a particular group of people engaged in insurrection before the law can be enforced. Okay. There was a vigorous dissent, and of course that's going to be front and center before the U.S. Supreme Court. And the That's what I was going to ask you. So you think it is quite likely that the U.S. Supreme Court will take up this case? Yes, indeed. It it's, uh, has huge implications for the country. There are challenges pending uh, in uh, other states. And Bush v. Gore was the last 
kind of central challenge to the integrity of the election and the court intervening there. Well, let's talk well. about that because there has been a lot of conversation just, you know, in the last less than four, 24 hours, a lot of people comparing Bush v. Gore to this case. Um, and obviously that was a Supreme Court case that decided the outcome of the 2000 election. How useful do you think it is to compare Bush v. Gore to this Colorado case should the Supreme Court take it up? It's extremely useful, and it's very striking that in Bush v. Gore, the court explicitly rejected the argument that uh, who won the election is a political question that should be decided ultimately by Congress and not by the courts and stop the recount. Here, if the U.S. Supreme Court reverses the Colorado court, it'll reach the opposite conclusion. It will uh, hold that this is a political question and that Congress has to decide it which is precisely the move that it didn't make in Bush v. Gore. So regardless of how you think this court should be decided, the U.S. Supreme Court would be acting dramatically differently in this election than it did in 2000. And another thing that has surfaced in conversations since last night, it's been noted that three of the justices on this Supreme Court were, of course, appointed by former President Trump. How much do you think that should or will matter to their ruling on this Colorado case, again, should the U.S. Supreme Court take this case up? Well, the U.S. Supreme Court in Bush v. Gore was very suspicious of the fact that the Florida Supreme Court was a group of Democrats who they seemed to think were trying to steal the election. And Justice Stevens, in his dissent, criticized the court majority for being so suspicious of the integrity of the lower court judges. In, in practice, that may be at play here uh, again, uh, but... Um, the court will also be sensitive about the tremendous hit that it took in, in Bush v. Gore and basically will try to avo avoid that uh, determination entirely. What, what makes this um, even tougher, and it's a very complicated case with a lot of moving parts, is that the only relevant Supreme Court precedent in this case, decided by Chief Justice Chase during the Civil War, did hold that Congress had to act before the disqualification provision should be enforced. So the Majority, if it's inclined to act here, may rely on that case and try to keep the U.S. Supreme Court out of it. You notice that there's very, you noted that there's very legal precedent currently on this particular provision of the 14th Amendment. Just, you know, as a constitutional law scholar, what do you make of the legal strategy here of using a sort of forgotten provision in the U.S. Constitution as a tool to potentially reshape this presidential election? Well, it's, it's remarkable. You know, words like unprecedented and historic are, are, are true here because it, it is indeed the fact. I mean, the truth is that ever since Bush v. Gore, which was itself an unprecedented uh, argument, which had never been tried before, the U.S. Supreme Court has been at the heart of elections and presidential elections, too. And we right. just saw last term uh, the court refusing to allow state legislatures to change the result of elections after they take place. And we will have to leave it there. Thank you so much. That is Jeffrey Rosen of the National Constitution Center. Thank you. This week, we expect to mark a milestone in Gaza, 20,000 people dead from Israel's offensive. That's according to the Gaza Health Ministry. That is about one out of every 115 people in Gaza killed. 
Neighborhoods have been flattened. Hospitals, shelters are overwhelmed. Well, Philippe Latterini is the Commissioner General for UNRWA. That is the United Nations Relief Agency that aids Palestinians. He is on the line from Amman. Welcome to All Things Considered. Good to be with you, Marie-Louise. So I, I know that you were just back from Gaza. You were there last week. This was your third visit since war began, and I saw where you said that every time you go back, you think it cannot get worse. I gather it gets worse. And each time it's getting worse, each time it's getting more desperate. Last time I went was on the eve of the truce. At that time, I have seen how desperate people were in the United Nations shelter. They were overcrowded. They were living in unsanitary condition, sleeping on the floor without mattress, without blanket. Winter is coming. And when I went last week, I thought that what I saw before was already heartbreaking enough. But an offensive has been expanded now in the south of Gaza Strip, mm. pushing additional hundreds of thousands of people to the south in Rafa, and we have today more than 1.2 million people across the Gaza Strip sheltered in our premises. Mm. These are not even shelters, these are schools, these are warehouses, these are health centers, but you have also hundreds of thousands of people now just living in the open. So the shelter is already overflowing and thousands and thousands of people living outside the shelter. Is there one story, one person who you spoke to that'll stay with you? Well, the, the story is the story of the man with the five children who basically started to burst into tears when he told me that he feels that his dignity has been stripped because he cannot take care of his children anymore since they are begging every day for a sip of water, for a loaf of bread. They are queuing hours to go to toilets. And basically, they feel treated like a human animal. Talk to me about food. I understand it's become so scarce that people are scrambling for it, fighting for it, if they see a, a food truck go past. Oh, this is also something completely new. And I warn more than once that very soon people will not just die because of the bombardment, but they will die because of a combination of weakened immunity, disease outbreak, and hunger. And now, most of the people I was uh, encountering during my visit were telling me, listen, I haven't eaten for the last uh, day or two days. Sometimes we have to skip for three days. So in an environment like this, uh, indeed, people are so desperate that they try to jump on our truck and take the food from the truck and just eat it from the street. Where do your efforts stand to get more food in, to get more medicine in, any aid into Gaza? Our call is very clear. We need the full opening of the Karim Shalom crossing in Israel. Two days ago, it reopened. Few trucks came in, but unfortunately, it's not yet at scale to respond to such a massive You're describing this is a crossing between Gaza and Israel. Uh, the focus up to now has been on the Rafah crossing from Egypt into into Gaza. That's exact. So until now, we had uh, the crossing from the Egyptian side, uh, Rafah. Since a few days, we are also using for some trucks uh, the crossing coming from uh, Karim Shalom, which comes from the Israeli side. Um, I interviewed the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, yesterday, and I asked him about aid. He was very critical of the UN. He essentially blamed the UN for the bottleneck in getting aid into Gaza. I want I want to let you listen to what he said and then let you respond. They could have tripled the aid to Gaza. They could have brought many more medication. They could have resolved their differences with their local partners and got it in. 
but the blame is put on Israel, and the media will always put on Israel. So please, dear media, go and check how come tens of thousands of humanitarian aid and trucks do not go into Gaza every day. He says the UN could be getting more aid in if you wanted. How do you respond to that? Oh, that's true. We could have much, much more if uh, Israel would allow more trucks to come in. Today, for example, we had only 46 trucks coming from Karim Shalom and 100 trucks coming from Rafa. So basically, despite the reopening of the crossing, we do not have overall additional trucks coming into the Gaza Strip. What we need is something much more meaningful, because what we are getting today is far from enough to respond to such a crisis. Uh-huh. I just want to stay for this for a minute, because it's obviously incredibly frustrating <laughs> to to hear uh, Israel is blaming the UN. I just heard you say, you know, if Israel would would open the crossings and keep them open, we could get more in. How do you break the impasse? Well, listen, you have many bottlenecks. First of all, you have a still ongoing bombardment of roads which have been destroyed, trucks which have been destroyed. When trucks come in, they are not allowed to go to the final destination. They have to download and then you have to re-offload. If we would let trucks going to the final destination, you can let trucks come in uh, in the hundreds and this would not be a problem. So the bottleneck is a series of uh, issues related to the conflict, but also to administrative procedure. Mm. That is Philippe Lazzarini, Commissioner General for the UN agency UNRWA, and he is recently back from a trip to Gaza. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston, a midweek drop on Wall Street. The Dow fell more than one and a quarter percent for its first loss in 10 days. S&P and Nasdaq both gave up about one and a half percent. And Cambridge-based East Scooter Startup is reportedly shutting down its U.S. operations at the end of this month. Online tech newspaper TechCrunch reports super pedestrian executives cited financial reasons when they spoke to employees on a Zoom call. The shutdown comes 18 months after super pedestrian raised $125 million in financing. The MIT spinoff began operations 10 years ago. It operated shared scooters in more than 60 cities in 11 countries and is said to be exploring the sale of its European business. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Boston Globe's Murder in Boston. A new podcast from the Boston Globe and HBO re-examines the Charles and Carol Stewart case, probing a story everyone thinks they know but doesn't, revealing hard truths, new findings, and changing the narrative of a pivotal time in Boston's history. Murder in Boston, wherever you get your podcasts. Boston Celtics continue their California road trip tonight. They'll take on the Sacramento Kings after a tough overtime loss to Golden State last night. Tip-off in Sacramento is at 10 o'clock tonight. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Cambridge Naturals, with a curated selection of organic groceries, natural body care and supplements, and bulk refillery. CambridgeNaturals.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. 
Apple is pulling Apple Watches from its stores to comply with a ruling from the U.S. International Trade Commission because of a patent dispute. Coming up at 6.30, Marketplace looks at what the decision says about the patents of today and about the nature of invention. Overnight tonight should be a dry, crisp night, about 30 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny again and colder should only make it to the mid-30s. This is WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Earlier this year, NPR published four tapes recorded behind the scenes during executions in Virginia. The tapes revealed details about the last seconds of prisoners' lives and indicated that the Virginia Department of Corrections may have tried to cover up one recent botched execution. Now that department is keeping dozens of other tapes hidden, saying the agency wants to protect the privacy of families. Family members. But NPR found four relatives of different prisoners who were put to death. They all think the record should be published to hold the prison accountable. Here's NPR's Kiara Eisner. On the bleachers of a middle school football field in Richmond, Virginia, Ian Taylor and his mother Amy look through pictures of Ian's dad, Robert Gleason, and his three sons. Oh man, okay, so who are these people? So this is Joe, which is the oldest kid, then Sean, then Ian. And then those are all Bobby at different ages. He literally looks like my brother. Oh, so. Until Ian was 10 years old, Amy had only told him that his father was dead. But it wasn't until Ian Googled his dad's name at school that he discovered Robert Gleason had been the last person executed by Virginia's electric chair in 2013. I, I just really feel a lot for the rest of the day. I kind of avoided my friends and I went home and immediately asked my mom. That night, Amy told Ian everything she knew about his dad. The murders he committed, the tattoo she got of a drawing he once made, the time he told everyone at the prison they were getting married but forgot to tell her. They literally called me and were like, um, you're supposed to be here for the wedding. And I was like, what wedding? Left him at the altar. <laughs> but she didn't tell Ian that the Department of Corrections recorded audio behind the scenes during his dad's execution because she didn't know that. Nobody from corrections told her the tapes existed. The tape is still off limits. Virginia is keeping that recording hidden from the public and 30 others like it that prison employees taped during executions from 1987 to 2017. Only four execution tapes like them from Virginia have ever been published. NPR aired those in January. The tapes give listeners an insider perspective that no one from the public usually hears. Testing, one, two, three, testing, one, two, three. Have you got the recorder on? Yes, it's on, go. The inmate is now stepping out of his cell. He's carrying the inmate into the chamber. I repeat, the testing of the equipment is now complete. It's 11.04, the first surge of electricity has been administered. The first charge has been applied. 11.05, second surge of electricity has been administered. The doctor has given the word that inmate Whitley has expired. Process complete. The execution tapes are laced with details like that that explain exactly what the state did and did not do when it killed people. And until Virginia abolished the death penalty in 2021, it executed more people than any other U.S. state. NPR sued to obtain the rest of the tapes. In the first hearing of the case, a lawyer for the Virginia Attorney General's office said the state didn't want to make the tape public, in part to protect the privacy of families like Ian's. But Ian and his mom said they want to hear what's on there, and they don't mind if others do too. Like one of the prison guards would have been treating him, you know, not exactly legally, 
that would be a huge problem. And if that were to be released, that could help a lot with, you know, shining some light on that. We spoke with three other families whose relatives were recorded as they were executed. They also said no one from the Department of Corrections had told them the tapes existed and that they'd rather the state publish the tapes about their relatives, too, so they could hear if something had gone wrong. There have been allegations, some of them already proven, that executions have been botched. That's Robert Dunham. He's a death penalty lawyer who oversaw the compilation of a list of executions nationwide where some sort of mistake was made. In Virginia, four executions in the past 50 years are well known to have gone wrong. Dunham says there's reason to believe those weren't the only ones. And here we have an opportunity uh, to possibly find out what happened. I think there's an overwhelming public interest uh, in that information coming out. Uh, and there's no state interest uh, in hiding that information once the execution has been completed. Travis Spencer also worries about whether Virginia might have made a mistake when the Department of Corrections executed his older brother in 1994. He's a comedian now in the D.C. area. Virginia's own from Alexandria. Give it up for the hilarious Travis Spencer, everybody. Come on. Hola, But Spencer doesn't joke about what his family experienced after his brother was convicted. Do you ever use any of this material in your comedy? Hell no. Nah, I wouldn't want people to... It doesn't make for good material. However, on the flip side, the family does go through some things, and that's, that's never been talked about. Spencer remembers how he first found out when he was a teenager that his brother had been arrested for a string of murders in Richmond and Arlington. And then I come home from school. I was like, wow, mom's home early. Something must be going on. He found her upstairs, clutching a newspaper and crying nonstop. I asked her what's wrong, and she really couldn't articulate anything. So I just grabbed the paper and read it. Just kept rereading it to it made some kind of sense. And um, I just hugged her. I just hugged her for I don't know how many hours. I just let her cry. His brother, Timothy Spencer, became the first person in the U.S. who was executed for murder after DNA evidence was used to convict him. Spencer remembers how that affected his family. We got death threats. You know, it's almost like we're not even human. We wasn't a structured family. I got accused for loving my brother. That's my brother. I got to love him. Spencer didn't watch when Virginia finally executed his brother. But he remembers how he felt that day. You ever go through a day where you just numb, but you know that death is around, like you can feel it. And then the closer we got, the, the thicker the air got, and then the quieter it got. When we told him that execution was recorded, he said he wanted to listen to the tape. I don't know the feeling that I would have after the fact. I just know that that's my brother. I still love him to this day. If there's something out there about my brother, I would like to hear it. Spencer thinks others should be able to hear the recording, too. And for that to happen, it would have to be made public. But once again, you have to have the tapes. You're trying to hold them accountable. After a judge ruled in favor of corrections keeping the tapes hidden in August, NPR appealed. Around the same time, the agency hired a new director, Chad Dotson. In other jobs, Dotson has been vocal about his belief in government accountability. Last June, Sandy Hausman from NPR member station Radio IQ highlighted his efforts as the Virginia Parole Board Chair to make that group less secretive. Already, Dotson insists on a greater degree of transparency. 
And finally, he's pledged to attack a backlog of pardon requests. We've tried to open it up. We're having weekly meetings. My recommendations are going to be transformative. I want to change just about everything about how we do things here. But NPR's request to interview him for this story was turned down. And the tapes are still hidden today, despite the wishes of family members. Kiara Eisner, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies tonight with a waxing moon right about 30 degrees. Tomorrow, another sunny, dry day, still windy. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Then Friday, pretty much the same. Sunny, chilly in the mid-30s once again. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. And Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. And Brookline Booksmith in Coolidge Corner, an independent bookstore offering books, gifts, events, and more, just in time for the holidays. More at brooklinebooksmith.com.